Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Uncorked with Funny Wine Girl. This is Funny Wine Girl, aka Janine Luby. And even though my name or my moniker is Funny Wine Girl, I also have a dark side, I will admit. I do like scary movies. I do sometimes like darker humor. So through this story that I wrote last year, Are You Sure You Have the Right House? It gave me an opportunity to tap into that darker side, but also using humor. So without further ado, I revealed, or I should say unveiled last year, Uh, I revealed it in two parts, and then I played an encore presentation last week of, uh, are you sure you have the right house? So now in 2023, this is the continuation of that story. Let's see what happens to Catherine. Here we go. Catherine wrinkled her nose at the stench that seemed to be living, or rather dying, in her skin. Ick. The horrid smell of like 50 years worth of stale cigarettes. The type of smell that is infused in everything. Walls, carpeting, couch cushions, every fiber within a home, every cell within a smoker's body. After sniffing a bit more and looking around, Catherine realized the smell was indeed coming from her But how could that be? I don't smoke. I don't even vape. If I want the taste of cotton candy, mango, or fall apple, I'll get it in my CBD gummies or Friday night martinis. I don't need Juul for that. And to be clear, I am not talking about that cool folk singer who was meant for us from the 90s. As if awakening from a dream, Catherine looked at her surroundings trying to really focus on her whereabouts. Not only was this smell foreign to her, because she doesn't smoke, but the clothes she wore were not hers either, yet they hung from her body. Gray pinstripe slacks, charcoal gray vest, a gray checkered sports jacket, complete with maroon pocket square, and black Boston wingtip shoes. Now, I'm not one to determine what a woman, man, or non-binary person should wear, but these clothes are certainly not from my closet, she thought. Why am I dressed like this? And where the fuck am I? Just at that question, Catherine got a hint. Metal wheels were screaming along. She must be on a train. After a few minutes, Catherine's eyes lit up from the bright idea inside her head, kind of like a jack-o'-lantern. Or jill-o'-lantern, but now is probably not the time to get into all that. I must be participating in some, I don't know, TikTok trend? Dress like your great-great-grandpappy and ride a train? Oh, I don't know, but there's probably some sort of dancing involved too, right? Then she began to second-guess herself. I don't usually participate in internet trends. Maybe she was doing it as a goof, like a parody of some sort of stupid social media trend as social commentary? 
That Now that would make more sense. Her eyes suddenly lowered, as if they were being pulled downward. She looked at her hands. They looked like her hands. The sight of red stains on her palms and nearly every delicate finger did not startle her. That actually seemed familiar. It rang a bell for her, but not the good kind, like the bells of St. Mary, more like the warning bell Chief Brody rang with his entire body on Amity Beach. Uh Uh-oh. Suddenly, Catherine was swimming in uneasy feelings. Brody was right to caution, get out of the water. There appears to be blood in it. Before Catherine could drown in the abyss of her feelings of anxiety, the train conductor announced loudly, The next stop is our last stop for the evening. Catherine thought she was only speaking to herself, but was apparently using her outside voice when she wondered aloud, And where the hell is that last stop? Because the conductor responded, Scranton, with a bit of disdain as he looked her up and down. Scranton? Really? Home of the office? Even in the midst of crisis, Catherine couldn't help but get excited at the prospect of visiting the fictional city of one of her favorite sitcoms. Oh, wait. Scranton is real. That's right. I did read about that on social media. And so (laughs) it's got to be true, right? The conductor who wore a tag revealing the name Butch Emerson responded, Scranton, Pennsylvania is the home of coal mines mostly, but yes, I suppose there are offices in the city as well for bankers, owners of the coal mines, factory manager. Catherine interrupted. No, no, I'm talking about the TV show about a paper company. You know, Michael Scott. That's what she said. No. Dwight, the guy who owns a beef farm. Are there beef farms around here? The look Butch gave Catherine was bordering on consternation and disgust. Are you drunk or something, ma'am? I mean, first off, you are not dressed like a proper lady. And secondly, your hands look as if you came from a beet farm with those red stains. The train seemed to break at just about the same time Catherine did. With mouth open... She stopped herself when she realized she didn't know why she was here or even what year it was, so she'd better not draw any more attention to herself. Butch pointed out the very things that were vexing Catherine about herself. Why was she dressed in men's clothing? And why were her hands stained? Even though the stains felt familiar, she still didn't remember what caused them. If she had answers that were satisfactory for herself, she'd be happy to share them with Butch. Clearly, Butch had no light to shed, so she decided to nod and say, Thank you, sir. Uh, I appreciate the information. I think some fresh air at the next stop will do me some real good. As the train emptied out onto the platform, something caught Catherine's eyes. It was a poster an ad for a train called the Phoebe Snow. It was named after the woman in the picture, a fictional character, I suppose. 
It was the promise of a passenger train whose exhaust was cleaner than any competitor's locomotives because of the use of anthracite coal. So ladies could dress in their finest and emerge just as beautiful and spotless after a long train ride. While Catherine had studied old ads like this in her college graphic design classes, it wasn't the ad so much or its style that interested her. It was the woman featured in the ad wearing a big white hat and long white gloves that went to her elbows. The woman looked familiar. As if Catherine didn't have enough puzzles to solve, this has to be added to the list. Just then, Catherine stumbled upon a clue. She overheard a lovely woman being called Mrs. Longstreet by a gentleman who tipped his hat toward her. She turned to the woman alongside of her and said, doesn't my Nora look lovely in that advertisement? They wanted someone older for the ad who had a maturity and elegance about her, but not someone too old so as not to be attractive. Nora just made the cut at age 25. She's getting up there, you know. She has her grandmother's beautiful porcelain skin. That's why I gave her my mother's name. That's it. Catherine felt relief and fear all at once. Catherine's great-great-great-grandmother was named Nora, the younger cousin of Clara, who was hanged in 1822 due to extreme public paranoia, fear, and the high fever of some mysterious illness that ravaged nearly everyone in town, but Clara, who did not get it, causing many to suspect that she was a witch. Well, that and the fact that she was 18 and still single, and black cats followed her around town. At least that was how the story was told to me by my grandmother. Knowing she had not lost her oh-so-valuable sense of humor, Catherine smirked a bit and thought, I sure as hell don't see any DeLorean in sight, yet it appears as I've gone back in time. Catherine decided to follow Mrs. Longstreet from a safe distance. Perhaps she could learn something that might explain why she was here, in this moment, in this location. But if she did find something out, how would she use that information? She couldn't exactly say, um, excuse me, Mrs. Longstreet, you don't know me, but, uh, I believe we're related, but yeah, I come from about 118 years in the future. Yeah, okay. She would most definitely agree with Butch that I was drunk or worse and likely call the police. I didn't pay that much attention in history class, but I have a feeling that police in the early 1900s can beat me with their clubs and lock me up in an insane asylum on just a whim that something's off. And given that I'm here from the year 2022, I'd say there's more than a little something off. Just then, a handsome gentleman with salt and pepper hair wearing what looked like a Burberry trench coat appeared at the end of the train platform, waving his hand, which held a bouquet of white roses. He walked toward Mrs. Longstreet, leaned in, put his free hand around her waist, and said, Sarah, when you're gone, every second feels like an eternity. 
Promise me you won't travel to see your cousin again anytime soon. And at that, Sarah reached up and took his bearded face between her hands and kissed him with the affection and passion that only a true love could. Sarah? Wait, what? My great-great-great-grandmother's name was Nora. Could this be her, maybe, daughter? I've never been great at math, okay? Cousin Clara was hanged in 1822. What year are we in anyway? Hmm. She seemed puzzled. Is this like maybe the 1900s or something? As if doing math was going to be the thing that finally put Catherine over the edge after a day of apparent time travel, Catherine began to feel a bit weak in the knees. She stared at the white roses that were slowly changing color. Right before Catherine's eyes, they turned red. Blood red. Blood appeared to drip from every petal, slowly forming a puddle on the train platform encircling Sarah's feet. Catherine knew that it wasn't wise to draw attention to herself, but she had to say something. She walked towards Sarah, and just as she was about to open her mouth to speak, she felt her legs finally give way. But she didn't fall to the ground. She just kept falling, and all she could see swirling around her was blood. Catherine! Catherine! Hey, honey! Hello! Are you okay? Catherine opened her eyes in a state of even worse confusion. Standing above her was Heather Trudeau, longtime friend and fellow artist. She sculpted and sang in the most hauntingly beautiful voice in town. Up on the wall was that horrific, bloody sight that artist and art exhibition organizer Lars Zarek thinks I created as some sort of artistic statement about corporate greed, but I don't know who put that up there, and at this point, I don't know what the hell is going on. I think I might be going crazy. I heard about people who took too much melatonin and started having hallucinations, but I never thought I'd be one of them. Catherine, honey, Heather said, you passed out. Now, I know you want to bring attention to your art, but I've never known you to act extra to accomplish that. Are times that tough? You're going to feign fainting for a feature on the nightly news? <laughs> she laughed in a good-natured, mocking tone. The news? What do you mean? Catherine asked. Oh, yeah, I guess you missed it as you fell to the floor. Channel 22 ABC was here. Yeah, Hannah Brightstar and her cameraman Phil interviewed me. I'm sorry that it wasn't about your art, though. I guess there was a murder in the neighborhood nearby. The cops are canvassing the area just in case the murderer is still painting the town red. <laughs> I'm sorry, that that really is a horrible thing to say. But I heard one of the cops saying it to the other, and I guess I just repeated it. Heather reached out for Catherine before her head could hit the floor again. Honey, what's wrong? You look like you've seen a ghost or a murderer. You didn't see him, did you? Sensing that she should begin to act normal, whatever the fuck that might look like these days, Catherine began to collect herself. She sat upright and replied, 
oh, I've been too consumed with my art these past few days to have a clue about any murder. Do the cops want to talk to me? Heather looked puzzled. You? No. Uh, why would they want to talk to you? Oh, 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 I don't know. Uh, you said they were here looking for the murderer and talking to people. And uh, I, I guess I just thought maybe they wanted to talk to everybody in the building. Whew. Oh, that, oh that's good. I mean, I, I don't know anything. And I guess I'm so nervous about my exhibit that I wouldn't be of any use to her. I mean, to them. I mean, ooh, I think I need to rest. I think I need to uh, get home and just rest. Heather put her hand on my shoulder and said, Oh, honey, <laughs> those two cops were bickering like an old married couple over where to get donuts. And I'm not saying that to be ironic or stereotypical. I literally overheard their conversation that went like this. <clears throat> Your eyes look more glazed than the donut I'm getting at Krispy Kreme. Then the other cop said, You'll have to pry my car keys from my cold, dead hands if you think you're going to Krispy Kreme. So, uh, yeah, I don't know about the poor soul who was murdered, but I feel really badly that their killer will probably not be brought to justice by these two goofballs. <sighs> Catherine exhaled. She hoped Heather would not notice her sense of relief. Not that she murdered anyone, but there is an art exhibit under her name that features a white Nike t-shirt soaked in what appears to be blood just blocks away from a murder scene that has to draw some suspicion, doesn't it? I just need time to track down information like who put this here under my name and is that red dye, animal blood, or actual human blood? And who put this here? Wait, I said that already. I need sleep. Unless I am sleeping and this is all just a dream, well, a nightmare, that would be more accurate. Thankfully, the art gallery decided to postpone the opening of the exhibit until the following weekend because of the media coverage about the murder. The gallery director worried that people would be afraid to visit the neighborhood, so she wanted time for the hype about the murder to die down. But let's face it, people's attention spans are so short these days. It's like, this additional time will come in handy, Catherine thought. I have to figure out what's going on before things get worse. And unfortunately, I don't believe any amount of cleaning or organizing will calm my nerves today. Catherine normally would <laughs> organize some spices or some underwear drawers for some kind of sense of normalcy and calm, but it was going to take a hell of a lot more than that to help her feel calm these days. With all of the excitement and trauma, Catherine slept like a rock that night. The next morning, after sucking down a much-needed jumbo-sized black coffee, Catherine drove to St. Lucie Cemetery, just about nine miles away. Catherine is not someone who believes in ghosts or the supernatural, but she does believe in strong connections that remain with loved ones even after they've passed. And ever since she heard about this really cool thing called a wind phone, she's been going to St. Lucie's about once a week and sometimes more when she really needs to dial up a lost loved one. There's something truly comforting about punching in the phone number of someone you loved on earth and feeling like you're connecting again. I find peace and answers, and if ever there was a time I needed both, 
That time is now. I walked to the old phone booth positioned under the big oak tree about a quarter of a mile inside the cemetery, but stopped as one rather ornate tombstone caught my attention. I followed the chiseled vine down from the top of the tombstone to the name in the middle, Frederick Morehouse. Where did I see that name recently? Catherine paused. Last year, while sorting through boxes that her mother had kept in storage, Catherine found very old, tattered and yellow photos and news clippings. So delicate, she was afraid to unfold them, but she did, very carefully. One man's name was circled in red, and next to it was written, Morehouse and fellow henchmen, Theodore Pintrick and Robert Gilcrest, who killed Clara with their witch hunt. But Catherine felt like she had heard that name Morehouse more recently, and after not hearing it for about a year, it seemed kind of like a rather interesting coincidence. Eh, maybe it's nothing, Catherine thought after a minute or so. She continued on to the phone booth. Now, this wind phone thing might seem crazy to some people or a waste of time, but Catherine just loved the idea that lines of communication remain open to loved ones after they die, especially since she lost her mother just about two years ago. The wind phone was apparently started by some garden designer named Ataru Sasaki of Atsuchi, Japan, in 2010. He was mourning the loss of his beloved cousin, so he set up an old-fashioned phone booth in his garden with an unconnected rotary phone inside. Thanks to local historian Lucia Steves in Nawbone, Indiana, this cemetery added the phone booth in about 2018 after Lucy read Sasaki's story in the New York Times. It's ironic that I'm using this phone to talk to my deceased relatives when I almost never make phone calls to the living. Context is important, and so is your blood, your family. Catherine reached for the phone receiver and put it to her ear. She pushed seven digits and began speaking, hoping that talking to her mother would provide some kind of comfort. The past two days were just, well, a lot, and that's putting it mildly. Catherine was beginning to feel like a character in a Ryan Murphy production. So mom, you know, if you could just send some love and calming, positive vibes down to me, uh, well, I would really appreciate it. I, I feel like I could lose my shit at any moment. Oh, sorry for the swearing, mom. Thanks for listening. I love you. And I hope you're living an afterlife of beautiful peace with the sound of cardinals chirping, all that stuff you love, fresh flowers just filling your nostrils. I promise I'll be back to talk to you soon. At that, Catherine went to hang up the receiver, but she just about lost her, her footing and began to fall. She gripped the side of the phone booth to catch herself and finished hanging up the receiver. She then walked slowly to the wooden bench nearby and slumped onto it. Catherine just remembered where she heard the name Morehouse. It was on the local news last night. That 
is the name of the young woman that was just murdered, Adeline Morehouse. Now that has got to be a coincidence, but it's some coincidence. I mean, I doubt that woman was related to the man who led the witch hunt against Clara. What are the odds, right? By the time Catherine drove home, she was ready to crawl back into bed, pull the covers over her head, and stay there until it seemed safe to emerge. But she wasn't sure when that might be. This whole Morehouse business was troubling. Oh, yeah, that and the fact that a bloody art that bore Catherine's name appeared from out of nowhere and was on full display in the gallery for all to see. Oh, yeah, I haven't forgotten about that, but I mean, <laughs> I need a minute, okay? Give me time to breathe. The thought that a young woman was murdered and could have been related to the family that had Catherine's relative hanged was not sitting well. That thought was stuck in Catherine's mind like a piece of apple skin gets stuck in her front teeth, wedged in there really good, hard to extract. Catherine was so distracted that she had trouble getting her key to work in her front door. As she was jiggling it, she heard footsteps behind her and thought she might literally have a heart attack. She turned around slowly, not sure what to expect or who. Hey, I texted you three times. Hell, I even pulled a boomer. I called you. When you didn't answer, I thought maybe I should stop by in person. Heather stood on Catherine's porch holding a bag from Krispy Kreme. Ah, the power of persuasion. Don't worry, I'm not dying and neither are you, I don't think. I hope not. I just wanted to see how you're feeling after all of this craziness at the gallery. I'm not sure if you watched the news today, but uh, they revealed who was murdered. I guess she has some local fame in Gnawbone, or at least her family does. Someone from her family way back, I guess in like the 1800s or something, is like a Marvel villain or some shit. There's apparently a section about him in the local historical society detailing his public popularity for spouting puritanical nonsense about single women being witches. So much has changed, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anywho, are you okay? Honey, he's long since dead, so don't worry. You're safe. Besides, you're a good woman. You're a cat mom. Mr. Poe would be lost without you, so you're still a virtuous woman. You'll be fine. That goes a long way. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding around too much here. You look serious. What's, what's going on? Catherine swallowed hard before trying to say anything. I, I, uh, I was just at the cemetery, so I'm in a strange place at the moment. Um, I'm sorry. I get sentimental thinking about my mom and you know, talking to her, you know, do you want me to come in and hang with you for a bit or would you rather chill by yourself today? Catherine looked intently at Heather and said, you have no idea how much it means that you stop by to check on me, really. And I don't want you to think I'm being rude, but I need to go lie down. Visiting the cemetery always makes me feel extra emotional and I feel a migraine coming on as well. Usually when that happens, the only safe space for me is under the dark covers in my room. You understand, right? Of course, my God, honey, you know I do. Heather handed me the bag of glazed donuts and hugged me goodbye. 
Catherine closed the door behind her, tossed her keys onto the hallway table, where that black moleskin journal still sat untouched, and she sat in a chair facing the window. What stared back at her was the reflection of a stranger, someone she'd no longer recognized. Who am I? Catherine questioned aloud. I feel like I don't know myself these past few days. Her phone buzzed. A lot. Cell service at the cemetery was not so great, so her messages were all coming through now at once. Heather's texts and voice message appeared, and there was one more voicemail. It was from Dr. Cumberland. Well, if this isn't the universe knowing exactly what to give me when I need it most, my therapist. Why didn't I think of calling her? That doesn't matter. She's calling me. I guess she must have seen all of that interesting stuff on the news about the gallery and uh, she's probably worried about me, which is like really nice of her to reach out. Catherine pressed play on the voice message and put it on speaker. Catherine, this is Beatrice. Um, I'm worried about you. You didn't make your last appointment and uh, it's been two weeks since your Thorazine was refilled. It is still sitting at the pharmacy. I know that you've come a long way over the past two years, and I have all the faith of the world in you, but it's really not a good idea to stop taking your medication or to miss appointments. You know what happened last time. Please call me back as soon as you get this message. Catherine wasn't sure what to think. She had one more voicemail waiting for her, but she didn't recognize the number. Thinking it might be Dr. Cumberland from a different cell phone, she pressed play and put it on speaker. Ah, Catherine, my lovely Catherine. I was going to talk to you at the cemetery today, but the line was busy. Your work is just beautiful. I hope people in Gnawbone get it. I mean, I really hope they get it might take some time, but I know they'll all get it eventually. Well, I just wanted to call and let you know that Uncle Hugh is watching from above, and I'll be in touch. I'm going to see to it that your art career really slays. Catherine's phone alerts were working overtime today. Another one came across. This one was from ABC 22 News app, confirming that the woman who was killed was former pageant queen and Christian youth minister, Adeline Morehouse, who was born Adeline Wilhurst. She chose to use her mother's maiden name when she turned 18. That, oh, now that, that was the last pebble needed to shatter what was left of Catherine's composure. Catherine dropped her phone and jumped up, causing her bistro chair to fall loudly against the tile floor of the kitchen. A noise so raucous that Mr. Poe scurried from his bed and ran into the kitchen closet. Wilhurst! Wilhurst! Catherine shrieked. That was one of the three people on Facebook who recently showed up in her notifications for accepting a friend request that Catherine swears she never sent. 
one of the very same people who also reported her to Facebook for making terroristic threats. Another thing Catherine did not recall doing. There were three people, actually, Adeline Wilhurst, Benjamin Pentrick, and Sarah Gilchrist. Who the hell are these people? How in the world am I connected to them? I don't know them. I never reached out to them. I I don't understand what's happening. Catherine knelt down and reached out for Mr. Poe, who hesitantly left his safe space in the closet to run to her. She scooped him up and squeezed him tightly, mostly to comfort herself. She whispered, Dear God, please make whatever this is stop. I think I'm losing my mind. Catherine felt emotionally tormented and must have fallen asleep on the couch. When she lifted herself, she saw the kitchen clock, the one shaped like a wine bottle that reads, time to unwind. It was 7 p.m. She must have slept for like six hours. She really should call Dr. Cumberland back, even though she does not have a clue what to say. Mr. Poe really needs to be fed. Catherine called to him, but he did not come. She searched the room with her eyes and then walked into her bedroom. He was hiding under her laundry. She pulled him out and found a stain on his left paw. What is this? Oh no, it looks like blood. Before she could panic and just streak out of there to the veterinarian's office, she checked every inch of him, but found no signs of injury. Then she looked down and saw that the tops of her white Adidas sneakers had stains that also looked like blood. Catherine slowly turned her left hand over while holding Mr. Poe tight with her right hand. There were stains on her fingertips and the palm of her hand. Fearing what she might find on her right hand, she sat on the bed and began to shake violently as the tears just flowed. The sound of Catherine's elderly neighbor's TV sliced through the walls. One neighborhood in Gnawbone is living in fear tonight, even though Halloween decorations have been packed away. The body of local welder and youth minister, 38-year-old Benjamin Pentrick, was discovered in his garage just hours ago. Police at this hour are wondering if his murder is tied to the murder of Miss Adeline Morehouse, who was attacked only a day ago. Police are remaining tight-lipped, but our award-winning reporter, Flash Wilson, says that neighbors from both murder scenes have reported an unfamiliar Volkswagen Jetta parked in their neighborhoods. Anyone with information is asked to call the special hotline that's been set up. 1-800-SAVE-US. That's 1-800-SAVE-US. Catherine heard a voice off in the distance. Time to board, Butch Emerson called, followed by, and this train won't be stopping for quite some time. Well, that is the conclusion of 
the continuation of this year's version of Are You Sure You Have the Right House? I'm not saying the story is over. I will continue to add to it, but this time of year allows me a great opportunity to have fun, get creative, and write something that's dark yet humorous to some degree. Not that I'm saying murder is humorous, but I always like to incorporate a little bit of humor in my stories, even if they're dark. So I hope you've enjoyed. And if you listen to only this year's version, go back. It's I should keep saying version, and I shouldn't say that. It's one story that is continued. So if you picked it up just this year, please go and look. Last week, I published an encore presentation of what I had written and published last year around this time at Halloween. So if you didn't listen to that, go back and give it a listen. Um, But either way, I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, I hope you, uh, I appreciate you, I should say, indulging me. Uh, Like I said, I enjoyed writing it and having an audience listen to it. It makes me feel good. So as I always say, I appreciate you for tuning in. And uh, if you enjoyed this or didn't enjoy this, I hope you'll return on Thursday. Every Thursday, I publish a new episode, and typically I have a guest each week. You'll hear from fabulous different woman each week who shares her insight, information, inspiration, and we like to entertain just a little bit if we can. So this Thursday, November 2nd, you will hear from Emily Wilcox. I'm sorry, Emily Hickox. I don't know why I just said Wilcox. Emily Hickox will be my guest, and we're going to be talking about budgeting. And you know, as the holidays are around the corner, If you're like me, you haven't done any shopping yet, but um, some people probably have already crossed everybody off their list. I have a good friend who does her shopping in the summer and she's already done, but in case you haven't, and even if you have, I hope you'll tune in and listen because Emily and I talk about the importance of planning, budgeting, but also understanding that you have to bring joy to yourself and others in your life. So you have to kind of balance. You can't just be too strict with yourself with your budgeting. So I hope you'll tune in for that. That is this Thursday, November 2nd. And uh, as I check out the show notes, I have information in there about my Buy Me a Coffee page. If you'd like to make uh, some kind of investment, $5 or more, just to say thanks, keep up the good work with this podcast. Or you know how you can also show support? You can share this podcast on your social media, write a review, or tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know to listen. That is so helpful for uh, small folks like me. And I don't mean small because my waistband's getting larger, but you know what I mean. We're not the the big wigs out there who already have a million followers. So you know what I'm saying. Uh, I do really uh, appreciate you from the bottom of my heart and the bottom of my wine glass.